Why, hello. Thanks for joining us. I'm Josh of Dharma Punks New York, dharmapunksnyc.com. We'll be at Philadelphia um, on June 17th for a day long. So if you're in the Philadelphia region and you'd like to connect with other um, friends of the Dharma, join us. It'd be lovely to see you. On the last Sunday of June, we'll be having another gathering in New York at Center Yoga. And uh, I will not sure if yet the link is up, but it should be up very shortly. And uh, that's uh, from 2 to 5 p.m. on Sunday on 23rd Street, last Sunday of the month of June. And on August 31st to September 4th, we'll be having once again our Labor Day retreat where we had like uh, 70 people or 80, I can't remember. But uh, it was a really wonderful gathering and with yoga and hiking and uh, great food and the information is also on the garrison institute website so um find out about there and hopefully if you would like to support my work as a dharma teacher buddhist pastor um the venmos dharma punks with an x and the PayPal is on the dharmapunksnyc.com website. And there's a Patreon uh, page as well under Dharma Punks NYC. And it's uh, certainly one of the most constant themes of counseling work I do, avoidance coping uh, especially conflict avoidance. It's very often a sign of a lack of maturation. And so uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, why that is, the ramifications of conflict avoidance, and the ways to move on to healthier interpersonal dynamics when we have to convey difficult information or go through uh, possibly conflictual interactions with people. So it's pretty common. Uh, for uh, for example, when two people are dating and one no longer feels comfortable in the relationship, the anxiety concerning a breakup conversation can lead them to keep stalling or waiting for the right time. Or when people at work feel the need for a raise or time off from work, but stalls conveying these important needs. Or when roommates get irritated by some of the habits and routines of another roommate, but out of fear of disturbing the relationship, stall having the dialogue. Or when a family member delays telling a parent that they won't be traveling home for a holiday or Mother's or Father's Day, so they put off the issue in general, steering clear of someone we fear might be angry with us 
And anytime we use the phrase kicking the can down the road, it almost invariably indicates that some form of avoidance coping is or conflict avoidance is uh, at hand. In essence, conflict avoidance is any behavior that attempts to regulate another person's emotional states by either circumventing a disagreeable interaction or constantly pretending that everything's okay. Some people refer to it as a people-pleasing endeavor. Um, and while, of course, people-pleasing is endemic to our species, it's most important to note that in avoiding important conversations, resentment and unease is the inevitable result. Either resentment in us, if we're putting off having a difficult conversation about someone's behavior that is adversely affecting us, or it'll cause resentment and uh, even greater upset in someone else if we have been avoiding them because we've done something that is lamentable. So how do we know when we have a tendency to engage in conflict avoidance? Well, pretty obviously, when we withdraw from conversations the moment a partner appears to be disappointed, when uh, there's tons of unexpressed resentment towards an important individual in our life. Unexpressed resentments is a real key uh, to uh, uh, it. Uh, when the very thought of addressing an issue leads to such a disproportionate level of fear that it feels as if having the conversation would be a very threat to our survival. Um when a lot of our actions are based on what we assume or how we assume the other person will respond rather than actually having real communication. So when there's a lot of assumptions and expectations, uh, when we begin to notice that uh, we are engaging in passive aggressive remarks, so our anger or frustration is being deflected in ways that are not straightforward. And people who engage in conflict avoidance in smaller relationships tend to ghost other people, i.e. just check out and just um, uh, disconnect from them on social media, block them. <laughs> so the tendency to block or ghost is a clear indication of conflict avoidance. Uh, especially when we cut off affiliations without uh, having any kind of dialogue about it. Now, certainly there are different types of individuals who are prone to conflict avoidance. Dismissive or avoidant individuals find dealing with another person's anger to be engulfing, and this stems from early uh, relational you know, interactions with caregivers whose emotions were too big. Um, and anxious individuals might fear disappointing, uh, may fear disappointing others and feel it's unbearable as if their world will fall apart. Um, 
some even uh, delude themselves into believing that it's less hurtful if we wait until the other person resolves the individual the issue for us so some people rather than going through a breakup conversation will just hope that their actions will lead for the to the other people breaking up or they'll hope that a, a roommate gets so irritated that they move out or will hope somehow magically that a boss will realize that they haven't gone on a vacation or gotten a raise <laughs> and Trust me, that never happens. <laughs> At least in my personal experience, employers don't suddenly evaluate how often they've given raises to employees. So um, uh, there's significant underlying causes for conflict avoidance and avoidance coping. One is, of course, uh, the discomfort of being around another person's negative emotional uh, uh, expressions. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why we can find being around other people's anger, frustration, disappointment, sadness, and so forth to be very uncomfortable. First and foremost is that all of us when we were born, were completely dependent on our caregivers for survival. So the better our bonds were, the greater the reward neurotransmitters that we would uh, that would be secreted and forward projecting from uh, the striatum. Um, parental disapproval activates key regions in our brains, the amygdala, the you know, the PAG, the endocrine system governed by the uh, hypothalamus, yeah. Uh, and so as a result, instead of reward neurotransmitters, stress hormones are secreted when we start to lose bonds with important people. Um, at one point of childhood, almost every child is told by one parent not to anger the other parent. And so we learn to walk on eggshells or tiptoe around parents, and that leads to the belief our relationships are more precarious than they really are. Um, certainly when in childhood our parents become uh, distraught, disappointed, angry, um, children tend to blame themselves. Uh, children can't really... Um, a cognitively grasp that sometimes it's the parents' uh, issues. So children, whenever they're in the presence of an angry, frustrated, disappointed parent, tend to blame themselves. And over the course of childhood, they can develop what's known as core shame, a sense that there's something unlovable or broken about us. And so later on in life, we carry this fear of disappointing others. It can lead to a disproportionate expression of, of guilt or discomfort. There's a key region of the brain. We know from Matthew Lieberman's work, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex that highlights any form of interpersonal strife and activates emotional pain. So no one particularly likes 
to go through any interaction of strife, but it's an essential dynamic in growth and maintaining lasting relationships. I can assure you uh, that there's no way to maintain friendships and relationships of any duration without the ability to have difficult conversations. The more we avoid anything in life, especially conflicts, the worse what's called anticipatory fear becomes. So avoidance is always counterproductive. And there's a lot of reasons for this. Um, one is that the basolateral amygdala, which is part of the brain's, you know, subcortical fear response system, um, anything we avoid, it increasingly associates with a threat. What happens is when we're avoiding someone, we visualize them and we start to feel stress. And then the basolateral amygdala notes that we're avoiding this person. It causes stress and it puts, you know, uh, the equation together and just decides over time that the person is a real threat to us. Hence, when people go through breakups with people they've been in, romantic relationships with, and they decide, well, I'm just going to avoid going to the neighborhood where my ex lives. Uh, at first, it's just to uh, put off a potentially awkward conversation. But over time, the basolateral amygdala will begin to associate running into one's ex with a threat. So someone who previously we were in a relationship or a friendship with, now the idea of running into them can actually trigger the same somatic and physiological responses as if we are encountering someone who's going to beat us up. And I've worked in so many times in uh, counseling with people who literally you can tell from the way they talk about their anxiety of running into someone Someone who they used to be in a close uh, interaction with, it's almost as if now they fear they would be beaten up or something, even though cognitively they know that's not the case. Uh, there was a wonderful study by the Yale Child, uh, Yale, the Yale Child Study Center that shows that parents who help or accommodate children from having difficult interactions, the children only become more and more anxious. Avoiding difficult situations, avoiding potentially conflictual interactions only makes our anxiety worse. And I'll explain why in a second. But certainly the conversations we avoid become scarier over time. It's like it's the identical process to someone who falls off a bike and then instead of getting back on it, walks the bike home. Um, and then with the idea that uh, I'll ride it later and when I'm ready. Well, of course, in avoiding riding the bike, the fear and anxiety that we'll experience when we get back on it will only grow worse the longer we avoid 
or put off it. So um, withholding, especially when you do encounter someone that you've been putting off having uh, talking about an important issue, the withholding creates a bifurcated state of consciousness, which leads to what's called cognitive overload. Every time we keep a secret or withhold important information, such as a, a need for something that goes unexpressed or a disappointment that goes unexpressed, now the frontal lobe, especially the left hemisphere is chewing up glutamate and all these neural resources because it has to one have one interaction that's occurring uh, with someone but another internal awareness of the information that we don't want to disclose so it's it's extremely uncomfortable for the brain and not only that uh, people can tell neuroceptively we have very fast uh, unconscious processes in our brain that can tell when someone is not being totally forthcoming to us and it creates physiological unease in them so even if we think we're getting over we're actually more often than not not getting over uh, if you'd like to read about how devastating keeping secrets or not disclosing important information is you could look at the work of um where's my notes uh, anita kelly of notre dame who showed that concealing uh, is associated with greater levels of anxiety and uh, the great james pennebaker one of the most important uh, clinical psychologists of the, of the last 40 years notes that uh, withholding is associated with hypertension and reduced immune system function. Uh, and conversely, Gottman and many other researchers have shown that when couples do know how to have difficult conversations, um where they both listen they're respectful but they disclose important uh information and they do it at a mutually agreed time it's actually beneficial for the relationships the relationships become more intimate and securely bonded there was a study by james mcnulty another big name, um, it, which goes over what types of communication during conflict benefits relationships. So there's a lot of research in that. So um, the worst thing about uh, avoidance or conflict avoidance uh, is that it teaches us that we can't survive our own emotions, that really when we're avoiding having a difficult conversation we're telling ourselves that the discomfort we feel when someone else is disappointed is too much that we can't bear it and that uh essentially it's this false belief that our anxiety can do us harm and it actually doesn't it's a indication that we need to prepare 
anxiety, but it's not an indication that necessarily that some interaction is really going to cause us any harm, especially from the our own discomfort. So what about the Buddha? What did the Buddha say? <laughs> well, in the Hiri Sutta, one of the uh, suttas where the Buddha defines what uh, types of people to not uh, have in our life. He basically says that uh, one who, in anticipating difficult interactions, is always looking for a way out, is never to be trusted or to be considered a true friend. So if you notice someone is avoiding having uh, difficult conversations, the Buddha basically counsels that we not consider them to be honest with us. So it's very important for our friendships to, to uh, be evident in our transparency. In the Mita Sutta, the Buddha defines Mita means friend. Um, um, the Mita Sutta, the Buddha defines a friend as someone who's actually willing to listen to someone else's disappointment, even their anger, even their their words spoken in anger, while being honest oneself. So in other words, being honest even when someone is angry or disappointed. And the third factor in the Eightfold Path for Buddhists is timely true speech as a requisite for how we live our lives. So um, from a karmic perspective, we're asked simply to bear in mind what the long-term consequences of our actions are, whether for good or for worse. And certainly the tendency to stall, uh, to put, oh, put aside, to not be work through conflicts or deliver important information to live our lives from a place of fear is not a good long-term strategy for life. Um, as Casalino noted, it's a sure sign that we haven't matured into adult coping strategies. So I hope I've sold you on uh the negative ramifications of conflict avoidance and now i'd like to talk about ways to move on to different strategies of interacting with others when there's disagreeable experiences that need to be discussed so the first is oops i just uh banged against the desk Talk about disagreements as soon as possible. The more we wait, the more likely the interactions and the relationship will blow out. So the sooner we start addressing uh, frustrations when they're small, the easier the conversation. So a roommate who feels that, a person who feels that their roommate never uh, uses up the food and never replaces it or never does the di their dishes in the sink, if they don't mention it the first time or the second time it happens, then over time, the conversation will inevitably become more unpleasant. Uh, 
it will will deliver this request or demand with even greater force and by that time we'll be so resentful that we won't be able to manage our affects during the interaction so it's very important during conflicts to listen closely when others people are speaking interactions turn more conflictual when other people see that we're not listening and i can't emphasize enough that as we know from the work of porges that the brain has these very fast neuroceptive processes that are you know starting with the fusiform gyrus orbital frontal all the way down to the amygdala and other other key regions of the brain that are extremely fast circuits constantly in all of our interactions we are scanning without realizing it other people's faces looking at their eyes looking at their demeanor and we can unconsciously begin to tell when they're not paying attention and when they stop paying attention our affects start to become less and less regulated we speak louder we become more insistent we begin to lose our patience and our temper because unconsciously we can tell that we're being abandoned so it's essential to really listen to what other people say to us uh, so that not we can also repeat back what we've heard and it's important to um because if you do that then you will without realizing it be regulating their response as we deliver uncomfortable information it's really worthwhile in a in a conflict conversation to repeat back what other people say when other people feel heard so if somebody says i can't believe you didn't mention this earlier i can't believe you're telling me this now or uh I can't believe you want this or whatever, rather than immediately defending ourselves, repeating back, okay, I hear that you are frustrated by the timing or by what I'm saying. And I, I just want you to know that I hear that. Repeating back another person's affect immediately down regulates and makes difficult conversations more bearable if the words or accusations become dramatic it's a good idea to take a break but it's important when you're taking a break to set a time that you'll come back to the conversation because if you try to simply break the conversation while someone's angry without having a time that will only inflame them more or it'll make you feel even more just activated into avoidance coping and of course not only having a time to reconnect but being willing to break when the tempers flare up it's great to have be willing to listen to solutions that work for both people assuming it's a situation that can be solved uh the buddha does say constantly and it's also a 12-step um uh foundation that when we have to convey the truth we do it not only as plainly as possible but we avoid 
justifications and rationalizations. So, uh, you know, if uh, we have to deliver information like uh, we've accidentally lost something of someone's or uh, we we're late, uh, it's important not to go in by just talking about the stresses of our life or all the things that went into us. It just say, look, I'm very sorry I was late or I lost this thing or I forgot to call or whatever. Justifications, rationalizations are ways that we try to diminish and try to um, manage, overmanage the emotions of other people and it will backfire on us. It's useful when we're going through a really scary conversation to have someone available to call or meet with in the immediate aftermath because the anticipation that we'll have someone who will calm us, regulate our emotions, validate or support us in some way will help in the throughout the entire process will help regulate our affectual states, simply knowing that someone will be around has been shown to downregulate people's autonomic nervous system. So if you have someone to call, you know you can call in the immediate of having a scary conversation. It will make it less scary. You know unconsciously your emotions won't stay stuck in this heightened state. Many times in therapy with people, uh, we practice having difficult conversations and practicing aloud can be pretty beneficial if you have someone who's really willing to take the time to uh, listen to, you know, what, how you describe the other person. And it's, you know, so that they really can give you an accurate uh, rehearsal for the event. And it's important to play both roles, not only play yourself, but then play the other person so that you can see what kind of responses are likely rather than your fears of what you anticipate. Um Again, the Buddha wisely, continuously counsels speaking the truth. Uh, So if, for instance, we're in a relationship that we are not happy with, don't say we're taking a time off. Literally be honest about it. If you have to tell a parent or a friend that you're not visiting, don't say you'll try if you know it's impossible, simply state it. People can not only tell when we're not being entirely honest, but it'll only prolong the internal tension that we feel. So as the old saying go, uh, just pulling the Band-Aid off, it's important to uh, know what the truth is and say it in as um, friendly, honest, without any intention to hurt. Um, I would say overall that doing the work to um, to come up with different strategies other than avoidance and dealing with interpersonal tension is an investment in the future of all your relationships and all of mine. Um, practicing 
confronting discomfort uh, directly uh, will over time make for more intimate, honest relationships. Uh, and overall, as a social species, that really should be the goal that we have. So a really wonderful strategy that can help us in having difficult interactions is the ability to use key self-soothing strategies. So in tonight's meditation, what we're going to be doing is uh, practicing some of the core ways that in any situation that we can make our somatic experience less tense. And when the body is less tense, when the breath is comfortable, uh, when our affect states are relaxed, then uh, we can be with and stay calm in far greater conflictual situations. But when people are physically tight and tense, they find it very difficult to be in any stressful situation, and they're more likely to become dysregulated. So uh, tonight we're going to be doing some self-soothing strategies that we can do in any situation. So I hope that was in some way a useful talk. And uh, now I'd like to invite you to find a comfortable uh, uh, seat or find a couch or a, a yoga mat to lie on and uh, when you found the uh, position that feels right for you, if you would close your eyes, if that feels right. And bringing our attention to our internal experience, letting any visual representation of the world around us subside or become less important and just focus our attention on the sensations that are occurring in our body. Meditation is profoundly a time when we switch from monitoring the outside world, which is, of course, associated with degrees of stress and threat detection and vigilance, to internal awareness, which when we learn to sustain our attention on just body sensations and breathing can become a way to restore our nervous systems back to 
rest and digest. And really the first and most profound key to any meditation practice is simply to stay with sensations that are actually occurring right here and now. So thoughts and memories and plans are not actual sensations. They are little virtual realities that the mind activates as a response to times when we decide that our environments are safe. Over the course of life, we can habitually assume that's the time to get lost in thought. But if we do that, then there's never a time we can really rest when our eyes are open and vigilant, we're looking for threats. And when, if our, we're trying to meditate, our minds are just planning for the future or rehashing the past, all we will eventually wind up doing is creating more and more concerns and unresolved issues. So the real foundation of meditation is simply to find sensations that are actually occurring in your body, your breath, the sensations of your eyes behind closed eyelids, contact sensations with a chair or a cushion or if you're lying down on the floor or a couch or a bed. And so every time a thought or a plan or some story that's not happening right here and right now appears, the key is not to get frustrated, to simply note it. If it's important, promise in a while after the meditation, you'll come back to it. If it's really hard to stay with body sensations and thoughts keep intervening, sometimes simply listening to the sounds from the world around us arising and passing without visualizing what's creating the sounds, or repeating a phrase May I be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. May all beings be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. 
if you're working with the breath to see if you can find the actual sensations associated with breathing in and breathing out. Sometimes it's helpful to count either on the inhalation or the exhalation or you can count both breathing in think one as you exhale think two as you breathe in again think three as you breathe out think four and then when you inhale and think five start counting back down so four on the exhalation three in the next inhalation so you're counting from one to five and back down the odd numbers are always on the in-breath, and the even numbers are always on the exhalation. So we'll just sit for a while and just relax, come to a complete stop in life. Put aside all of the issues and challenges, and just really connect with life in this moment, in this body. So again, anytime you find yourself drifting away, either into a thought or just into a state of tiredness or unawareness, just find a sensation either in your body or the sounds around you. You can smile when it happens because it's nothing to be disappointed by. And it's always a little awakening every time we return from whatever concerns our minds generate. Just learning to put aside thoughts can be so beneficial. After all, so many times in life our thoughts intrude and make us unhappy.
So at this point, if you'd like to stay with the practice you've been working with, that's fine. But if you'd like to move on to some tools to help us deal with conflict avoidance, what I'd invite you to do is to bring into your mind's eye an image of someone that we've been either avoiding or have avoided having a difficult conversation with or acknowledging some issue with. If you struggle to visualize uh, people or situations, just gently bring to mind their name and just whisper it to yourself or say it aloud. If it is feasible for you to visualize the person in question, see if you can even visualize the place where this conversation might occur. And most important, see if you could visualize their face. Now, either in your mind or out loud, say whatever truth, disclosure, information that hasn't yet been addressed while visualizing their face, their eyes, their expression. And allow yourself to visualize whatever expression or response. But don't visualize something that's too difficult to work with. So, keep it within the realms of a likely reaction, not the worst case display of anger or, or uh, disgust or grief. And the point of this practice is to now find in your body as you visualize or imagine this interaction to find where in your body there's tension. So 
So if you feel it in your shoulders, relax and drop the shoulders. If you feel it in the chest, breathe in fully into the chest and then slowly release. And even if you can't find any physical tension in your body, see if throughout this practice you can soften your belly. Sends a message up the vagal nerve and helps restore us to a state of safety. The longer we breathe out, the more safe we feel as well. And in practice, just being able to listen as you imagine what their response will be without defending ourselves. Really allow whatever seat or cushion is supporting you to do that work. Don't tense any unnecessary muscles. The more we can keep the body in a state of ease, softening the belly, opening up the chest, dropping the shoulders, unclenching the jaw, unfurrowing the forehead so that we don't feel it scrunched. Long, complete exhalations. We'll find that we can be around difficult interactions without the same degree of fight-flight impulses. So for a few more minutes, just practice with any other individuals we've had difficult conversations that we've avoided. Or any situations or experiences we put off.
So at this time, as it feels appropriate, we're going to bring the meditation to a close. And at whatever rate feels comfortable, just return your awareness to the visual world around you while trying to keep your body relaxed and your breath long and comfortable. So thank you for your practice.